Today's episode is sponsored by Kitten Kaiju Games, publisher of the exciting new zombie card game, 30 Seconds to Live. If you want intense zombie action that feels like the season finale of your favorite zombie TV show, check out 30 Seconds to Live, which will be live on Kickstarter on September 29th. This fast-paced game is easy to learn, and your first time playing will be under 90 minutes, including learning how to play. In this two-player game, you can either play as the survivor, trying to escape the horde of zombies, or you can play as the horde, desperate to kill the survivor. And all of it is set against a 30-second timer, which guarantees an exciting game every time you play. So again, 30 Seconds to Live will be live on Kickstarter on September 29th, and for more information, go to 30secondstolive.com. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about running. We're talking about what it looks like to run games at conventions, both in person and being 2020, also online and doing digital conventions as well. And we're talking to Sam Stockton from BA Games. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? I am doing very well, sir. Really glad for you to be here. This is a timely thing to, to talk about. I know a lot of people you know, are looking forward to running their games in some way or, or, or fashion, but now they're having to do it online. So I'm really excited to kind of look at both sides of things. You know, for when uh, conventions actually do happen again, we'll have some information about how to best set up our booths and you know, hire volunteers to run the games and run the games ourselves and all those different things, but also how to run them online. I know there's already been several conventions uh, this year and then quite a few more coming up. And so I'm just really excited to pick your brain about how to do this. I know you've been doing it for a long, long time and run lots of different tournaments and games at conventions, and you've done a lot of online stuff recently as well. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Well, I guess to introduce myself, I, I'm Sam Stockton, um, co-founder of BA Games with my brother, Ed Stockton, um, who likes to be referred to as the Duke for some reason. Anyways, so yeah, we've co-founded this company, uh, BA Games. I guess the first question people always ask is what BA stands for, but uh, long and short of it, uh, we had to write a blog about it, but basically it means brothers awesome because I wrote a terrible rap when I was seven years old um, about being a brother who was awesome with all my other brothers because I'm one of five. So take that for what it is. But so ever since we were kids, we've always been playing games of some sort. So like my years growing up was a lot of Warhammer. Um, also, like the Palladium um, RPGs, like Rifts and Robotech, uh, branched out into a lot of wide variety of things. And we really loved games, uh, played a lot of games, specifically tabletop and RPGs. But it wasn't until my teens that I kind of discovered board games more, um, like Catan and a few others. And so we always talked about owning a game store, or, you know, it would be cool to make our own game. And we made our own few games, but they really sucked, let's, let's be honest. Um, and it wasn't until after I graduated college um, with my MBA um, that I'm like, I'm going to try it again. Just, you know, why not? So I made a game. It was terrible. I made another game. It was really terrible. But then the third one actually clicked with people. And so we decided, hey, we should try a little more, see how it happens. And people really liked it. 
Um, we made a lot of improvements to it. I learned a lot from my previous failures and people just really, really enjoyed it. Um, and so we started, we're starting our publishing company, BA Games. But during that whole process though, I've been working as basically a convention volunteer for, for years. So I used to be a, called a press ganger for Privateer Press. They, did, they do War Machine and the um, Iron Kingdom RPGs and a few other games. But like I worked for, as a press ganger for them for like eight years. Um, I did Gen Con a couple of times, which is kind of like the pinnacle of the volunteer experience. Um, let me tell you, I got stories about that if you want to hear about them. Then I also worked a few times with Parabellum, who is a newer company. Um, they started a war game, miniature war game on the tabletop called Conquest. So I've been doing um, their booth for like Adepticon and Gen Con as well. Um, I've ran smaller conventions. I've run booths at local conventions, bigger conventions, Gen Con included. So, you know, for years. And so I felt like with the MBA and the chops from there, my brother's uh, rigorous discipline from the military, uh, we could make this actually happen. Very cool. Well, it sounds like you you know what you're talking about when it comes to conventions. You've been doing this for a long time. Before we get into it, what exactly does it mean to run a game, to run a demo, to do this at a convention? Like, give me a good like working definition of exactly what we're going to be talking about. Because I feel like it could be multiple things. So, exactly what are we uh, diving into? So that's actually a really good question because when you when people think they run uh, like a demo at a at a convention, there's actually different kinds. So depending on what you are, you actually have different types of games and you can have this in your booth and some, a lot of good companies will do this. They'll have areas where you kind of like, just kind of test and demo a little bit. Like maybe you play around, just kind of get to see the mechanics because some people don't have the time because they're either on to another event or they're just kind of browsing through on their first day. So those are like the, the real touch quick demos, quick pitch, 30 seconds to a minute, Maybe you play a little bit and then you're done. Then you have the little more in-depth demos where you have like, maybe you play for 20, 30 minutes. Like maybe it's not the full game or maybe it is depending on the kind of game you have. And it just really focuses on teaching them and walking them through the game um, and get really sinking into that experience. And then you have the full learn to play games where you'd go from start to finish with a bunch of people who volunteered to want to play the game, like, like, Hey, I want, I want to do this. And so you get them all the group together and you go through an entire game. So those are like the three levels when you're doing conventions and to keep in mind that they're for different people that are at the convention. Yeah, for sure. And I want to talk about those different people and different reasons why you might do, you know, a real quick five minute thing, a 30 minute, an hour and a half, whatever it is in just a minute. But first, why is this important? Like, why is this worth talking about? Why is this worth having an entire podcast episode about, you know, why does it matter? Well, basically, games to me have always been about the human connection. It's about being with people. Um, I mean, there are solo games, and that's got its own um, parts that are very attractive, the puzzling nature of it and solving the problems. But in general, I would say games are very social by nature, whether it's a two-player game or an eight-player game or even bigger. So... Being at conventions, whether virtual or in person, is actually very important, in my opinion, very important to building up a community and building up that connection with players. People will back a game, maybe, depending if it looks cool and stuff, but they'll become fans 
once they are invested in it. And usually it's because they're invested in people. That's a great point. You know, I had the episode not too long ago about how to turn gamers, how to turn customers into raving fans. And I think conventions are one of the best ways to do that because your company now has a face. It's now a people. It's not just, you know, a logo and a website and some games on a shelf somewhere. No, it's actual people behind the games that are publishing them, maybe doing the art and doing the design and all that kind of thing. And it really helps you create those relationships. And people would much rather buy from a person than they would from some faceless company. And so not only do you get to build up community, build relationships, you know, get to know folks, build fans, you also get to make more money typically down the road. So not only uh, is this a, a good thing for people, it's also a good thing for business, right? Yeah, it definitely is the, the face of the business. I mean, certain people are going to do certain things. And that's the, the biggest thing when you do marketing or conventions is different people want different things from you. So not everybody wants to be your buddy, buddy. And that's totally fine. Like not everyone's going to come in. They just want a transactional relationship where you get them a game, they enjoy it, and and you're done, right? They may expect a certain quality from you, but done. But there is quite a few people who want more than that. They want more to the, the relationship between customer and supplier, basically. And so conventions allow you to do that really quickly in a very fire hose kind of way. Definitely. All right, let's talk about before the convention. So we're getting ready to go. What do we need to be thinking about? We know we're going to set up demos. We know we're going to you know, be playing games at our booth. What do I need to be thinking about long before I even get to the convention? Uh, well, it's a, it's a long process. I would say probably 60 to 80% of your convention is actually before the convention. Yeah, there's a lot of long hours on the floor and teaching and everything, but you do a lot of prep work or you even go. Um, one of the things you got to keep in mind is, and this is the, probably the most, one of the most important things, is know the rules of the convention. So when I'm talking to Gen Con or even a local convention, I want to know what the rules are. What can I do and what can't I do? For example, Gen Con has rules against uh, music and um, uh, decibel levels, basically, of sound. And your booth. So if you were thinking about adding a gong to your booth, you might get in a lot of trouble and they won't invite you back. So um, the things you see sometimes. Anyways, but yeah, that's kind of um, number one is knowing the, the rules of the convention. Um, okay. And now do they usually send those rules out to people who are going to be at the convention or do I find on the website? Where do I find those rules? So a lot of times on the website, the thing to remember, though, is conventions are kind of the place of gathering for all these different people. So they're not really coming to you. You have to go to them. So that's one. Another thing, too, is you are responsible for getting all the information you need. It is not up to them um, because they are a convention with a so amount of space and especially things like Gen Con or Essen, or other big ones, like PAX Unplugged, um, they have plenty of people who want, to, who want to show. So they're not inclined necessarily to, you know, go on a limb for you or, you know, stoop down and trying to, to help you out. It's going to be up to you. So you need to be one looking for the information. And if you don't find it, you need to be reaching out. Um, but many times they have it online. Um, usually they have a whole, you know, area of the page for exhibitors or, um, vendors and things. Okay. And when it comes to figuring out how big 
of a booth. Now, budget might be the main thing to think about. If you only have a certain amount of money, you can only have a certain size booth, you know. But as far as if I know I'm going to demo games, if I want to do one at a time or have multiple games running, what do I need to be thinking about as far as the size of the booth and how much space I'm going to need? Okay, so size is is hard because especially for a lot of young publishers or first timers, you don't know how big to go and also you really got to, booths are expensive. You know, considering that you don't know what's going to happen, um, they're fairly expensive. So, for example, like Gen Con, pricing is, I think, for a normal size booth, which is more like, I think it's like 10 by 10-ish, or 5 by 10, is like something or upwards like $1,600-ish, give or take. Um, it depends. But, like, that's a lot of money to sink in for a booth, right? But in terms of actual game, you can probably do one game effectively in that space because you're going to want someone who is actively working with people, trying to get them to test, the, look at the product or get information about the product. And then you're going to want one person who's kind of like um, actually demoing the game. And then ideally you'd have a third or fourth person. Usually a third person will be either more in depth because after a demo is finished maybe people want to talk about it some more so either that person switches with a demo person or that person's then handed off to somebody else to have a deeper discussion to create that you know relationship and that way more demos can happen um it's all about moving people through the system um and if they want to go deeper allow them to come deeper and engage with them but if they're just kind of just passing by didn't just let them pass by. Um, so that's kind of what you're going to do with the booth. So five by 10 or 10 by 10, it's it kind of, it's kind of tight uh, for one game, but you can make it work usually with about two or three people. Um, if you're just starting off with one game. Gotcha. And as far as tables and chairs, do I bring that? Do I rent that? How does that work? Well, um, mostly like, for example, when we were going to do origins before everything happened, um, we were actually um, in the process of buying tables and chairs because you could bring your own. And looking at the rent cost at the convention center was a lot more expensive. And we had a van. So and we were bringing the van anyways, so we could make some space and squeeze it in and squeeze in a table or uh, two tables and some chairs, um, some tablecloths and stuff. So we were able to bring our own stuff. Um, but it just depends on the convention. Like Gen Con's a big no. Um, all the tables are set up as is. You can have them change it, but you gotta let them know. You can bring tablecloths, um, and and some and some different additional stuff for the booth. Like maybe you have some stands and or banners and things. But in terms of the actual tables and chairs, like Gen Con provides them. Okay, but then I guess you can also rent tablecloths if you need to. But then, what are your thoughts on having banners? Like, what should what should be on a banner that's really gonna draw people in so that they will demo a game? Well, one you gotta have you gotta have your title, um, because if someone's passing by, your title needs to be out there so people see it. Two, you need some kind of um, image that draws them in, um, and then three, you need some kind of hook or tagline um, that can be that can be functional. So, um, I know certain games like like War Machine has always been steam powered miniatures combat. All right, that was their thing. So if you like giant, and then they have a picture of a giant 
a war jet, which is basically a giant steam-powered robot bashing into this giant werewolf thing. Um, and it says war machine and hordes. Like that was always their their stick was like if you like crushing and beating up stuff and you love miniatures, like this is the game for you. Like and it was over the top and very aggressive, uh, which works for some people. But then you have other games like um what did I see a few years ago? It was really which is really just pretty. It might have been Koi, where like this really nice, clean aesthetic and really zap and it's like um, talking about like the fish and like, like come like joy this is an experience or whatever it was and so like it was like oh if I want a more peaceful experience I'm going to try this game out so usually you need a name a title of the game you need some kind of imagery that really depicts the game especially what you're going for and then some kind of tagline or a hook that that kind of helps cement them yes that's what I want to play right just basic marketing concepts here of you know find, figuring out who your target audience is and then using the right language, the right art, the right hooks to bring them to your booth. Now, as far as staffing the booth, you know, if I need to go out and get volunteers, maybe I'm going to hire some people and give them free badges to come in and, and run some demos. What do I need to be thinking about? What, how, do, how do I need to you know, put out the applications? What do I need to ask in the application process, interview process to make sure they're going to be a, a good, solid demoer of my games? Now, there's kind of um, two rules of thought here on this one. Um, or even three, actually, technically. But the number one is when you're a small publisher, you don't have much reach or know of a lot of different people necessarily. So your first thing you're going to do is probably approach your family. And that's okay. Um, family tend to be very reliable because they're invested in you. They're invested in you as a person. They're invested in what you're doing because they're part of your family. So... That can be important, um, especially when you have maybe schedule changes, someone gets sick or whatever, they're able to pull more weight when you need them to. So family is like the first go-to. Sometimes you don't necessarily have that as much or maybe they're just not interested or maybe they can't because of work or work schedule. So then you go to certain friends. Now, this is where you got to be honest with yourself. When you bring a friend or even family member, that fact you got to be honest will this person work the booth the way i want them to or need them to or are they here to be like yeah i'm a friend i'm here but then not necessarily do what they need to be doing because that's when when you're in when you're in work mode on the convention floor you kind of end up being more of a boss sometimes and so you got to make sure certain things are done like when you introduce the game don't use that word. You need to use these words. Uh, don't, when you play a game, make sure you try and do it this way. With this, it's kind of all kinds of things that can happen that you need to be kind of looking at and registering. And that's one of the things you got to work, work on is, okay, can I trust you to do it? And can I trust you to listen and do the things that I need you to do? Then the third part of that is um, actually people you've met at from previous conventions. So we actually had, or, or people who've been following you. So for example, for our Gen Con online, we had myself, but then I had Melkor, Mega Man fan. Which I, I know them all by their online names because these guys I've actually never met in real life. Um, they're um, people I've played with um, for years. Um, when we, I played part of an amateur league for Heroes of the Storm, but we won't get into that. But um, so anyways, we, I've known each other guys for years and they've always been very dependable um, on time 
and they've helped run teams and they've done a lot of things for me that I knew. And they were also fans of the game. So I knew that they were going to be good and they were invested in, in me and my welfare. And I was invested in theirs. And then we had another guy come in who I've only known for three months, but he was very on top of his game. And he also um, was a follower um, of ours and he really liked our game. And whenever we needed someone to pinch, he would always volunteer. So those were our three main people. And then my brother, um, Joe came in as well um, on one of those days as well. So we had four different people besides myself running the virtual events. Um, there are some also services out there. Um, it depends on your um, use for them. I think that takes double exposure and the Envoy system. Um, there's some companies out there who can also provide uh, GMs and different things for your game. Um, those can be good, um, but I would strongly encourage you to try and know the people personally. So if you use that system, try and contact the people and try and be in uh, and make that verbal um, contact um, and or through emails or, or whatever kind of contact you can in order to try and um, get a little more buy-in um, personally into the game and into yourself. So that's another way you can do it. Um, I prefer the more personal approach, but those are good. Like if you can't make it to a convention, sometimes those can be alternatives that you might want to look at. Very cool. All right. So what should my expectations be of the people in the booth, especially if they're volunteers? You know, if it's my brother, especially my little brother, I can probably yell at him. Maybe I can hit him and uh, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> if I do that with some random volunteer, maybe I go to jail. And so what should my expectations be as far as number of hours for the person to work in the booth and and ways to approach them about different things. What should I say? What shouldn't I say? Do I need to provide hotel room? All that good stuff. What are the expectations? So the, the base level expectation industry is if you are going to have them run more than like a shift, which a shift would be anywhere between like four to eight hours. Like you really need to be providing them with the badge and the room at the minimum. So for our original Gen Con plan, I was going to bring, there were going to, there were going to be five of us coming to Gen Con originally. And I was paying for room and board. And, and, and again, for, I was giving them basically food for the day, maybe a little on the light side because we were really poor. But um, I told my, this is what I can afford to pay you for food. This is what I, I'm paying for your badge. I am driving all the way. So you don't have to pay for any of the gas or anything. So I'm getting you there. And I'm also, um, giving you the room. So basically all you got to do is work um, so many shifts and then uh, I'll be good with it. And it's going to vary um, on your thing. We are kind of a little crazy and I'm used to it. So even for like Gen Con online, our Friday and Saturday is we went from 9am in the morning all the way to midnight every day, um, both days. Um, and we had a game Every three hours, a game online lasted about two to two and a half hours. So we had like 10 minute breaks um, in between each game. So like we worked all day. <laughs> For um, an actual physical convention, uh, do you have a vendor hall which could close? So that will force your hand on shift on different shifts, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, so for example, for Gen Con, I, I use Gen Con a lot because that's like the epitome of big conventions. If you can handle Gen Con, 
you can handle pretty much any other convention. Essen excluded because that thing's monster. But um, basically, you're going to have them work um, a, a shift, which is usually somewhere between around four hours. And then you usually want to give them some sort of break because if they start at 9 a.m., because you got to be there before the vendor hall opens at 10. So if you go 9, they go like around 12, 1 o'clock, then you have to give them take a break. Um, usually I give them about an hour or maybe, maybe an hour and a half, um, depending on the day. Um, usually not Saturdays. That way they have um, time to kind of eat because it also takes a long time at larger conventions to find food. And also to, you know, sometimes you just want to look at a few things too. So usually I give them a four hour shift to that and then they'll work the day. And then, and then what happens, they'll come back and they'll finish the next four hours. Then you have a break for dinner. And then I also, a lot of times we'll run evening events. So either at hotels in the, in like the, uh, in like the different um, hotel um, meeting spaces, or maybe you were able to get a space in the event hall. We'll also run events post that because people are looking for games at night. So we'll do that as well. And so as that person works that entire day, what I'll try and do is make sure they get an entire day off the next day, which is why I was bringing five people because basically we're going to run four people every day and one person was going to have the day off. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, what else do you provide like in the booth, such as bottles of water, hand sanitizer, cough drops, deodorant? Like what are the other <laughs> things that you want to make sure to have on hand? Um, so for me, um, uh, there's like three essentials. Number one, you need to have something to drink. Um, usually it's water, but I have also, I also like to get Gatorades and things sometimes. Um, just because it kind of changes up the monotony of water. As much as I love water, I just, I don't know, for me, I need, I need something else. So Gatorade, I usually get both. If you drink two or three Gatorades, I, you start having some issues too. So I like to mix up between water and Gatorade. Um, so I like to have some, like a, an assortment of like two drinks. That way you can break up the monotony. Number two, I like to have some sort of snack because sometimes you can't get away to get food. And when you're talking a lot, you're standing a lot and you're moving a lot, um, which sounds weird because you're playing a board game, um, but you do a lot of it um, at, at conventions. And so I like to have snacks. So if someone starts, you know, getting a little lightheaded or they get, you know, oh, I'm getting a little hungry, like go ahead and have a snack, dude, because it's going to be another hour or two probably before you can get out of here. And we have that, that break in between. And so having snacks is, is like crucial. And then number three, um, some sort of, I like to do like minty cough drops or like minty um, like savers or something like that. That way it could, um, can, you know, make sure you're not getting too dry as well as make sure your breath smells nice. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about booth setup and what it actually looks like to put the tables out, put the banners out, put your board games that you're trying to sell. How should I arrange everything so that it's conducive for people to come in and be able to walk around easily? I'm not, you know, running into a bunch of bottlenecks, everything's smooth. You know, it's easy to sit down and play a game. It's easy to get up and leave. Tell me about just the overall setup of the actual booth. So this is, um, it's important for small publishers but you are going to have bottlenecks when you're a small publisher because you don't have a big enough space to do what you need to do as much as um, that you really need to do. But that's to be expected by con goers. They know that going to a small booth or a small indie publisher, you're not going to get all the fun, 
cool things you can do with booth design that you can do with like with the bigger guys but there's some things you can do to kind of set you apart um number one is like i said before there's usually like a, like a three-man system or a three-person system um so you have the the person up front who is basically the come one come all come play our game and granted you don't want me to be a, um, aggressive about it but when people make eye contact with you to me that's good enough information to be like hey how's it going say hi and if they interact and be like hey have you thought about playing this game like you're going out there and what you're trying to do is draw people in to stop because when people are looking at your stuff other people are curious about what they're doing it's just like if you go outside and just look up at the top of a skyscraper eventually you're gonna have people walking by they're gonna look up as well they're like what's going on what are you looking at um <laughs> It's just people, when they see other people do things, it's like, well, what's going on? And it's the same applies to Kickstarter or whatever. When people see something happening, they don't want to be left out. So you need to have people constantly at your booth and having people interacting with you at your booth. If you, everyone's just sitting there, standing there and not interacting, that is like the death note to a, to a booth. Like you're, 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 you're not alive, you're not interacting. And since no one's there, why would someone interact with you when no one else is there? Well, socially, apparently, you're not acceptable. So I'm just going to keep walking. Okay. And then, so earlier we were talking before the show about the science of shopping and different things to be thinking about and different things that kind of apply to like grocery stores and retail stores and things like that. Give me some of your, your best thoughts, your best advice as far as the psychology and, and ways to set up the booth, ways to interact with people, all that kind of thing. Okay, so yeah, so the first person is kind of the, the pull them in, right? And then um, the second person is the demo guy or the demo person. I keep saying guy, I'm sorry. Um, demo person. And so what their job is to actually be, um, to explain the game in a nutshell. Take 30 seconds to play the game and draw them in. Why is your game exciting? Why is it different? Why is it cool? Why should you play the game? Um, and you can, and that's where usually you have the components in front of you. And you, this is where you're trying to sell the game quickly to people who are interested in that kind of game. The thing to remember, you're not trying to sell to everybody. You're trying to sell to the right people. And so by doing so, by giving the game 30 seconds, these are some of the components. Um, here, touch this. These are our cool cards uh, we really like. There's this cool dice tower that comes with the game. Like this is where you throw in your gimmicks and kind of like, to kind of bring them in and be like, oh, in this game, like you don't know who anybody is, but when this happens, you could surprise them and different thing, or you can lie to them. You're trying to like bring out the fun aspects of the game and what makes your game different or the gimmick of the game. At that point, they're interested. That's when you need to bring them into the booth. Like, hey, we have a guy over here that's running a demo. Um, like, why don't you come in and play the games? So that's when that person they're actually going to run the demo and run the stuff and bring people in and really kind of have that happen um, and talk about the game more in depth. Things. So um, you mentioned the, remember earlier, the science of shopping. This is by Paco Underhill. Um, it's a really fun read. Even if you're not into marketing or into retail development or psychology, just give it a read. It's a whole lot of fun. Um, it's, it's pretty short. It's in these small little chapters that talk about different aspects. So one of the things you do with shoppers is 
they have what's called a landing strip, right? So this is actually important when you choose where your booth is at. When you first walk into a convention center, there is all this stuff. If you are right towards the edge, you're not going to get those people who are just walking in. There's going to be a certain um, adjustment period where they're coming in and they need that time to adjust to the surroundings and bring in all the information. So ideally, if you're going to be at an edge or a corner, you don't necessarily want to be at the edge or corner of an entrance. You need space to, in order for you to be seen. So if I was a person trying to get a booth if I had an entrance, I wouldn't be right next to it. What I would do is go about 30, 40 feet in and try and be it so my banner is facing directly at them in the entrance. And if I can't be directly in front of them, I want to be to the right. Because people by nature, and I'm not sure why this is as much, but people tend to turn right uh, on nature. Maybe it's because of the way we drive. Maybe it's the way different things, but it's almost like you're always walking on the right-hand side and people tend to go right. And so if you're going to want to be in that first you know, experience and impressions, you want to be either in front of them a certain way or to the right of them. So when they turn right, they're going to ride and run into you. Yeah, now that I think about it, I always go to the right. I go to the farthest aisle on the right, and that's where I begin, and that's where I start my journey. And so, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, what about something we were talking about earlier, the, the butt brush effect? <laughs> you know, you have enough space. Tell me about that one. So this is this is the thing. So um, Paco Underhill, what he does, he's a consultant. Like he like he's an environmental psychologist kind of guy. So what he does is he watches videos at retailers and tries to change them to have a better experience for the customers to help them buy, right? So that's why they use the science of shopping. And so one of the things they found out by watching different people is when the aisles are too close together, right, or the spacing is too close. When someone's looking to buy something, like, oh, should I buy this tie or should I buy these pants or should I buy this food? When someone walks by and brushes the back end, aka the butt of somebody, you can tell that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that. So what they do is they basically at that point put the object down and walk away because that experience is not very conducive to a shopping and it's very disconcerting, right? Uh, there's unsafe or whatever um, different experiences that person is, they, people don't like it, right? People have a bubble, especially in the United States. Now, this may be different in other countries, um, but specifically in the United States and for Americans, they do not like having their personal space invaded, especially when shopping. Yeah, it's definitely a cultural thing because, you know, I live here in Honduras and uh, personal space is not as big of a deal here, especially on the bus or in environments where there's already a lot of people. It's just kind of normal, natural. You're going to be brushing up against people. You're going to be like pressed up against people. I remember the first time I rode what they call the chicken bus here, and it's really just an old <laughs> school bus that is kind of the, the public transportation. And uh, the old joke is, you know, how many people can fit on a chicken bus? And the answer is one more. And I remember the first time I wrote it, you know, when I first got on, it was like, okay, there's not that many people here. And as we slowly made our way to the big city, more and more and more and more people got on. And like, there is no, oh, we're full. It's, hey, if you have money, you can get on the bus and we'll just figure it out. And I remember oh. just being pressed up against like on all sides, but all these different people and there's animals on the bus. Like, it's just kind of a crazy thing. And yeah, so, yeah. so when I was, down, <laughs> I was living in Peru, I had the exact same thing. Um, they call them combis down there. But like, 
you would stick people on. You're like, okay, you know, everyone kind of the whatever. But then as you got towards the city or whatever going, you sent more people. So, so much to the point that you'd have a driver and you have like the guy, the charger, the guy who's like taking their, taking your money. It would get so full. They would be putting people on like the stairwell and he would actually be holding the charger would be hanging outside the bus and holding people in the bus. Yep. Same thing here. <laughs> so take all of the grants. So if you're doing a convention in Honduras or Peru, maybe your rules are different, but you're probably going to be doing it in uh, Europe or the United States or somewhere. So, somewhere. so to, to bring it back to the, the, to the butt brush effect. So at a convention, what you want to do is bring people in to the booth as much as possible. So when you're on the outskirts, number one, it's, it's non-committal, which is fine for a lot of people. When you first make contact, don't try and bring them to the booth immediately. Um, basically you almost go through like a funneling or staging process where you make contact. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, have you heard about this game? Ah, eh, not really. At that point you're like, okay, this guy, I'm like, like, if you're interested, that's fine. We have some time. Here's a brochure. Cause they're not really, they're, they're giving you signals that they're, they're not really into it right now. And if you were to spend time with them, they'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like looking around, looking down the aisle, uh, maybe using the brochure as a fan because it's usually hot in conventions. Um, and so at that point, like they're not really giving it their all. Right. And so you're like, okay, you know, hi is done. Here's a brochure. If you're interested, check it out later. But some people are like, you may kind of like, hi, how's it going? And they're like, oh, what is this game? I'm like, well, let me tell you about it. And then they're interested. So you pull them in a little deeper. So you go from the aisleway to the edge. And then what I do and then, hey, if you're interested in this, come deeper into the booth and play a demo. Because then you won't get the butt brush effect because they're, they're going to be able to play the game with other people with a like mind who want to learn the game, as well as be deeper in the booth with all the artwork and stuff. So it becomes a little more um, a better experience for them with the game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, let's say you've got demos going, but let, let's say you have more people that want to play than you have demo opportunities at, at the time, at the time. And so how do you do like signups or how do you let people know, you know, we're going to be demoing the game at this hour, this hour, and that hour? How do you handle that whole thing? So that comes down to a lot of prep work, um, usually. So you have to, basically what you have to do is you need to plan for success, but prepare for failure. So you need to plan on having a lot of people sign up. But you need to be ready for all of it to fall through the floor. So what does that mean? So what it means is if you you need to so if you have three people, you know, one who's going to get them, one who's doing the small quick demos, like just kind of a hey, this game is like this, and you have the demo person. What you need to do is if you can have more space for demos. Plan on having so many people interested that you're gonna just be bringing them in all the time into your space. So you need to do is plan for the demo experience as much as possible. Now, that changes a little bit if you're actually selling product because you need space to make that transaction happen. But thanks to technology and Square, you don't need as much space for that. So that's great. Um, so as much as possible, plan to have more events if you can. If they fall through, that's fine because then you can have those people do something else for you. Um, whether it's 
playing games somewhere else. Maybe you have to pivot. And one of the things that we um, Gen Con can sometimes do is you can't go about broadcasting it, but you can like sit at a table with your stuff in the play area. And if people come up to you and want to play your game, great. Then you can tell them about the game and they can play the game. So maybe that's something you may want to reach out and try and get games that way. So you got a plan for being able to do all of that, but sometimes it may fall through and then you have different plans for that. So as much as possible, plan to engage people as much as possible, as much as you can fit semi-comfortably because the convention is never going to be completely comfortable. So do what you can to try and get as many people as you can um, playing the game. Speaking of going out into the kind of open gaming hall or sitting at a table and playing your game, what's your advice for a publisher? Maybe they don't have the money to go all in and get a big booth and, you know, maybe their budget just doesn't allow for that. What's your advice as far as just sitting down? Maybe can you set up a banner and just put it right there behind the table you're sitting at in the okay, open so, game? So that's going to depend on, on the on the convention. So Gen Con would disapprove of a banner um, immediately. Uh, you'd get in a lot of trouble if you were to put up a banner in the play area. Um, so you can't do that um, because people pay a lot of money for the vendor and the event hall spaces and for allowing other people to just basically commandeer other areas for that is number one. It's also not necessarily good for the customer, the consumer, because sometimes they want to get away from the selling and the vending and they need a, they need a place to play openly and just hang out and just be with friends or find new people to play have it a non-consuming capitalist, you know, uh, thing over them. But it's also too is it's just really not respectful to other people. I got to pay the money for it. So it ends up being kind of um, a bad thing. Cause here I am, I paid $1,600 for a booth. And then suddenly this guy just put up a vendor over there for free. Uh, why am I paying money for the booth? So it's, it's in order to keep the integrity of the convention, you have to make sure certain rules you have to follow. Now, if you were to have the game just set out and you were happen to have two other people with you, so if one person comes by, you can play a four-player game, that's different. You can wear your shirts. Um, you can have the game set out on the table so it looks really, really nice and pretty. Like, that would be the, what we would do. Um, even if you had maybe someone cosplaying as one of your characters, like, you could do that as well. Um, because you're not overtly saying, hey, we're BA Games, we're trying to sell this game. You're like, hey, we're just, you know, we're hanging out here. We're just kind of hanging out. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. All right, let's switch gears and talk about the actual how of demoing a game. What's your best advice on the actual sitting down with potential customers, with potential you know players, and playing the game? We talked about you might want to do a partial game. You might want to do a halfway game, just around, do the whole thing. Tell me kind of start to finish what your, your best advice is as far as the actual playing of the game. So it's really going to depend on your game. So if you are a two-player game, congratulations, you have the easiest demo experience. Um, that is like, if you can do a two, if your game is really designed for two-player, you have the best demo experiences and you can immediately, especially if you, have, if you have enough people, that's the only problem with two-player games is you need more people to run games. Because that means for every person who wants to play a demo, you need to have another person. So this was a thing with um, with War Machine when I worked with uh, with Privateer Press. It's it's a basically a two player game. You can play more, but really it's a two player game. And so you're teaching this 
really stripped down version of the game in about 20, uh, 15, 20 minutes. So there would be like 10 of us, 12 of us, each at our own little table with the miniature set up, the dice ready, and we're ready to go because the, the game is played that way. And, but it's really great because you're like, hey, you're just in a demo. You're like, heck yeah. You know, you just come right here. We'll play one right now. So you can, you can pull them out of there and you have like 10, 12 people going at the same time. Now, not everyone can do that. That's more of a problem if you're a miniatures company um, and you play like tabletop war games. Like that's more of an issue you're going to have to deal with is number of people you're going to need to teach the game. Um, now, on the other side, for board games, though, when you have multiple people, this is really nice because you have less people or more people playing demos. Um, so what do you want to do with the game? So um, basically, you're at the gauge interest. Um, so in a two-player game, it's really easy because you can gauge the interest real fast, and you can turn a partial demo into a full demo, or you can cut the full demo short. Right? So that's the beauty of a two-player game. You can do that. Um, because you're like, wow, this guy's really not into it. Or, you know, this person, she's, she's not feeling it. Um, or like, she's really into this. So we're going to keep going. In fact, we're going to add some extra rules. And that's where you can actually play with them a bit and add more to the demo. If that person is really into it and they're asking a lot of questions and they're excited about it, you can add even more. If you know the product, you're like, hey, and guess what? This is coming out soon. This is happening. Uh, we've been doing this for so many years. Like they're eating it up. So that's when you get to elongate it. So when they're excited, it's a little harder in, in, in bigger groups. So what you have to do then is change your um, demo groups to fit different types. So you have someone running demos that's literally just around. That way they get a feel for the game. Maybe you have them roll the dice because what you want to do is engage them as quickly as possible. So usually you have a scenario set up, you have the game set up, and basically you give them a few choices to make and have them roll the dice or, or draw the cards or do what they got to do. Get them into playing the game as quickly as possible and moving around pieces. That's demo one. Now, if they if they like, hey, I really enjoyed that round, usually then you have to either pass them off to a, a, a bigger demo table that's taking a lot longer, or... If you get a few other people nearby, like maybe they're friends. So this is where actually getting groups of friends is actually a good thing because people don't necessarily go to con solo. So having three, four or five people in a group be like, hey, yeah, grab these four people and we'll set up a game for you right here and we'll play through even a, a few more rounds. Um, and that's where you're going to kind of have to gauge that. So with board games, you have to plan for both. Unless you're a two-player game, then you have to have the individual plan per time they're doing a demo. Definitely. I think it's also really good to make sure you give the demo players permission to leave or permission to say, hey, I'm done, right? You, you always want to check in, especially after, after a round or after a certain amount of time and say, hey, do you guys want to keep going? And if they say no, that's totally fine because, you know, who, who knows the reason they might have something to do. They might be hungry. Like I, I don't take it personally if they go, no, I don't feel like playing. It might not have, might not have anything to do with your game and have totally something to do with, with some, something you've never even thought of, but definitely make sure you give players permission. Cause there's a lot of polite people out there that will continue doing the demo, continue doing the, the game, playing the game. And uh, they don't want to, they, they feel like they, they want to leave, but they want to be polite. They don't want to hurt your feelings or, or be negative or something like that. So always check in. So 
So to riff off of that, you're exactly right, right? You want them to leave. But we, what you need to do is you need to try to shuffle them out before they get too far in the process. So that's why if they play the one round and be like, hey, and if they say, I want to play more, like, hey, do you want to play more? That You give them an out at that point before they go into a bigger game. Now, sometimes what you'll have is, and that's why um, in Gen Con, one of the successes we had was we called certain events learn to play. And then other times we had just demo situations where this is just a small demo. So if you don't want to commit fully, go here. If you want to commit fully to a game, then come to here. This is a full learn to play game. Now, what will happen sometimes is you'll get people who are done. Um, they'll play a round or two and they're done. Um, you have to unfortunately try and play around that, uh, which can suck sometimes because maybe your game requires that. Because when that player leaves, it's like leaving in the middle of a game of like Lords of Waterdeep or um, in the middle of Az uh, Azul, you can probably get around with it. But like certain games, like if suddenly the person's not there, it changes the game completely completely and it actually ruins the experience for the other players potentially now a lot of them are very kind and pain like yeah i understand it's not your fault but they still get a bad taste in their mouth with the experience because someone had to leave so you try to want to try and want to sift them out as soon as possible it'll probably it'll still happen someone gets a phone call emergencies happen so you want to do is try have backups either have someone else on your team fill in for them if possible, or you then have to try and cut the game short and say, hey, here's another time we're playing the game fully. Why don't you come to this one? We'll, we'll guarantee you have a great time and play a full game. So you gotta be, you gotta be careful because even to leave, you should, let the, you should let them leave. You shouldn't hold anyone captive. That's a really bad idea. Um, and you should allow multiple outs to leave. So what it means is you need to, kind of sift them out before they get to the full game. Because once you get the full game, you want the experience to be the best as possible and you don't want them leaving in the middle of the game. Gotcha. As far as winning and losing, should I, you know, if I know how to play the game, I'm the one that designed it and pub publishing it. Should I crush them? Should I beat them by hundred points? Should I let them win? Like how should I handle winning and losing? Yes. <laughs> so, and bear with me. Um, so it depends on the player. So this is definitely a depend situation. So when I was demoing War Machine, um, and you saw this all the time, guy would come up, he'd play it, and if you lost, and you, could, and you can tell that he's looking at you like, why didn't you do that? Like, well, you know, I thought I'd try this cool thing. And he's like, uh-huh. So that guy wants to be crushed. He wants a game that is challenging. He wants to be beaten, smacked down, and then come from the dust, find a new way, and beat you with it. That's the guy you want to fight with, with it all and show him what this game can really do. So in a very competitive games, you really have to watch for this um, mentality because there are people out there who want to be beaten because they want a game that is challenging. They, if, and if you, if you let them win... Or they feel like it was maybe they didn't know that you let them win. They feel it was too easy. They're not going to buy your game. It's too easy. So you got to watch for that personality type. Other personality types just want to explore. They don't care if they win or lose. They just want to see all the cool stuff your game can do. 
So what you do there is you try and find the crazy comp. So like in War Machine, which is a good miniatures game, I only use it because I'm very familiar with it and demoing it a lot. So in War Machine, like maybe you just want to kill the guy, like destroy his, his model. But in War Machine, you can actually do a throw where you double hand throw them into another model and then they both get knocked down. And then have someone else charge in and then uh, do other stuff. So you actually do like multiple combos and like he's throwing people and smacking them down. And people love that. Um, we have a card in our game called Astral Rift. It's been affectionately called by some people the YOLO portal. Basically, it's a it's you you throw dice into it and it's gonna randomly things are gonna happen. It's a chaos generator. People really like that. Some people don't. Some people really don't like that. But in a demo situation, people, some people really enjoy that aspect of the game. They don't care if they win or lose. You just want to have fun and experience it. And then you have people who are a little more timid and they really want to win. They want to feel accomplished. And so that's where you need to help them to do that, um, to accomplish it uh, and do that. Then you have people who are number four who just they don't want your help. They just want to try and figure out for themselves. And if it's intuitive enough, they'll get into it. If not, they'll just kind of walk away. Right. I would lean on the side of beat people, but maybe don't crush them. <laughs> because, I mean, I think you can beat someone to the point where they don't want to play it again. You're like, well, they just have such a bad experience. But if you can, beat them. Because I know personally, if I win a game and it's the first time I've played it, I typically don't want to play it again. I, I really enjoy being you know, able to go out on top and kind of win the Super Bowl and retire and, and be undefeated and untied. And so if I lose a game the first time I play it, I'm much more likely to play it again. And so I think that's something to just so kind of keep... Because that's your personality, right? So you were definitely a... Because um, uh, you were a football player, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so very competitive mindset. Um, trying to conquer the next obstacle lays before you. You have that personality type. Um, I would lean as a demoer um, personally. Um, and it depends on the game. Different games have different things. Um, sometimes, like, so like War Machine, you probably want to lean on the side of beating people up um, because it's a very fast, aggressive miniatures war game. So you want people to do things to be destroyed and things to go flying, parts flying, all that stuff. Um, for other board games, I would actually probably go for the more exploration route because in the back of their head, it is a demo. So what you want to do is try and showcase what the game can do. So maybe you do try to go for the win a little bit, but do other things that are fun or interesting. Maybe it creates a cool combo. Maybe it's not a winning combo, but it's a combo. And people were like, oh, people like pulling off combos. Engine builders, the whole idea of engine builders to have that positive feedback. I do this, which leads to this. And which then gives me this, and you're building and give that positive feedback over and over again. Do that, right? Find ways for people to engage with your content. Um, besides just winning or losing, show them what your game can do. Why is it fun? Why is it exciting? Why is it replayable? And that's where I would go with it. Absolutely. And along those same lines, I think it's also smart to kind of uh, rig the deck, so to speak, and make sure the game is shuffled in a way or set up in a way that gives the best possible experience that the really cool combos are going to come out. Like you, you know, if you have a game, especially that does have a lot of things playing off of each other or different things that are, you want to happen. And if you're only going to play for 10 minutes, you want to make sure you're setting up the deck in such a way that those 10 minutes are excellent. That it's not kind of the, the low point of your game. Cause everybody has highs and lows in a game. Like a game can't be 10 out of 10 
the entire time. Like it's going to have ups and downs. And so what are your thoughts on like rigging the deck, setting the whole situation up? That way you have the best possible playthrough for that 10 minutes or for that uh, certain game. So that's a big hearty yes. So it depends on your game. So if you're playing a full learn to play game, you will need to do a little bit of it because there are probably certain characters or there's certain um, uh, strategies or certain factions or whatever your game uses that's a bit um, complicated for a first-time player, maybe. And so what you want to do is you want to kind of pull those out so your game is more consistent and you can get the experience people are looking for. So in a full-blown game, you might pull one or a couple pieces out um, to do that. Or, or factions or groups that are easy to understand and learn and feel accomplished in. If you're doing a quick run-by, I call them like run-by demos, where they're, they're there, they're going to be there for like a, like a couple minutes maybe at most, and then they're going to leave, you definitely have to have a fully rigged, ready-to-go game. So um, I always appreciate when a publisher has a game set out and what they don't, and I don't like this, the game is fully rigged with the choices of what you're going to do exactly on from move to move. So basically on there is move here, roll dice, move here, roll dice, move here, draw this card, attack this guy. I don't want to hear that. What I want to see is here's your guy. Um, your choices are this or this. What do you think? Okay, what if I go here? Well, because of that, you now get this benefit. Or maybe you get a consequence. Like, because of that, this is bad. This is what happens to you. If you would have gone here, this would have happened. Oh, okay. Well, let's keep going. Let's go to the next step. And so then you're like, well, here's your choices again. So you want to do is give them limited chaos where they have they can make choices for themselves and see the consequences of their actions. So they get a taste for what it's like. But it's not the full-blown game where you have like, a million options. Gotcha. Now let's say you complete the demo. Maybe it was just a round. Maybe it was a full game. Either way, how do you then transition them into buying the game? How do you kind of switch gears into a sales approach? So mostly, most of uh, a lot of part of sales is just showing up. Um, people hesitate. Um, I do a lot of training for my day job uh, with with new salespeople, and more often than not, most people who do sales, they're afraid to ask the question. And you can't do that. If you honestly think that person enjoyed the game, or even you think they had an okay time, you should lead to some sort of sales pitch. Because they played your game today. And you don't have to be like, oh, have you got to do this or anything? You'd be like, hey, um, did you have fun? Like, yeah, I had fun. Well, um, Here's some option. For, here's option A for you, and option, uh, and you want to start with option A, and usually you want to go a little bigger on option A. So you're like, hey, if if you had a lot of fun, would you like to buy a game? We have a sale going on right now, um, ten dollars off the normal MSRP or whatever, like uh, stuff like that. If they say yes, you're good to go. Um, you can even say, hey, um, do you know of anybody else? Because this is the problem. Once you make a sale. Sales not over, right? That person is now potentially a fan and a future ambassador for your game. So you want to get more information if possible. Like, hey, if they bought the game, like, hey, do you want to sign up for our newsletter when we come out with no more games, or we'll have special events for the game, or have you know community events? You want to get more information as possible, especially if they go ahead and buy a game. 
you definitely want them around because they like your game. They're willing to put down money and say, hey, I love your game. So that is a awesome person to have in your community, person to support you. So once you do that, the sale is not final. You need to get more information and help them know how to get involved in the community. They may say no, and that's fine. They bought a game, they like your game, they're gonna go away and that's fine. Maybe they'll tell their friends, you don't know, but you tried. Now, if they say, no, I don't really wanna buy a game, like, okay, that's fine, um, trying to force you. Um, if you are interested in more information about the game, as we make more developments for the game or have different games, and you can, if you have other games, you can point them out. Um, at that point, you want to get their email information and get them into your, your list, right? Because that is another person who you've had a personal contact with, and you can um, kind of you know, get them to be part of the list and part of the community. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you have any advice as far as, do you want to do that on with pen and paper? Do you have an iPad? What, what is your best advice as far as capturing this information? So MailChimp has a cool app you can use. Um, so basically if you have like an iPad thing, you can just kind of pass it over and they'll input their information to it real fast and they'll immediately go to your email list for MailChimp. Um, old school pen and paper, which by the way, never have a blank piece of paper for them to sign up on. Blank paper means even if it's like your fifth paper and you've had a hundred other signups, showing them a blank paper is just a little uh, uh, thing going off saying, Hey, uh, no one signs up for our game. So what you want to do is if you do another paper is try and get um, some people to sign up for it, or we can do sometimes you can transfer some of the emails from the previous one and put at the top like five to 10 emails just to show that people have been kind of going through it. Or what you do is have a blank piece of paper, but make sure they see the other pages full of emails. But I haven't looked at it, but like, and like have, make sure they, their eyes are seeing the fact that you have pages of emails. They're not alone. There's a bunch of you out there who love this game and we want you to be a part of it. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. It's 2020 right now. The world is different for conventions. <laughs> everything's digital. Everything's online for better and for worse. Tell me how these things apply to an online convention. Let's talk about how things are different Tell me about that whole world. I know you've recently run a bunch of games online at digital conventions. Tell me about that whole experience, that whole process. What do we have to learn? What, what? Just tell listeners what to be thinking about. So a lot of the same rules apply. Um, the downside, however, is that you're not going to get the run by traffic that you would normally get at conventions. Um, this is why I don't think virtual conventions have a place in the world. They will, I don't think they will really ever overtake a convention experience because number one, not nearly enough food depravity and standing around all day and hurting your back. Number one. So just virtual conventions cannot replace the experience you get at a physical convention and finding new things and running into people and finding friends and people you know, and the whole social experience of it. Now, for some people, virtual conventions will totally replace normal conventions. But virtual conventions do open up the avenue for people who haven't gone to conventions before to go to a convention-like experience in some ways. So when we ran Games for Gen Con online, 
uh, we actually had quite a few people like that was their first Gen Con and they've never been able to go before because they haven't been able to take vacation time, whatever, but they could take a day or two off for Gen Con and be at home. Um, they could afford it and it was accessible to them. So that was a really great experience for conventions. But so what you have to be careful of, though, too, is you're not going to get that um, walk by traffic. People are not going to come by and just kind of chat with you and leave. They've been trying with like the looking glass technology and some of the other stuff where Essen, I think, is trying to do it as well. Um, but even then, to be absolutely honest, I personally believe that that benefits the bigger publishers more than it does the small publishers. They're the ones with the big releases. They're the ones with the hot new thing and at the conventions, and that's even more amplified on the online setup. So as a smaller publisher, you're going to get drowned out really quickly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As far as running demos, though, what do I need to be thinking about as far as the differences? Am I running it through Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator and Discord? Like, tell me the technology piece, and then what do I need to be thinking about from an actual running these online demos perspective? So I highly recommend Discord. Um, unless you're doing RPGs, then that, that changes a bit. Um, you may want to run something like Zoom or um, some other avenues. Also, uh, Roll20, um, definitely for RPGs, is a good one. Um, but in terms of technology, for uh, we use Discord. We like Discord. Um, I like Discord, too, because when people come to your server, their names are now on your server, um, unless they take them off physically. And a lot of people are okay with that because we've had multiple times post Gen Con, like, hey, we got a game um, tomorrow at 8.30 p.m. Central. Is anyone interested in playing? And we've had people from Gen Con saying, hey, yeah, I got some time. I'll play. And we've been able to grow a bit of a community from that because they're on our server and we're able to contact them. So Discord is one way to capture their information for them to keep, to keep marketing and to keep being part of their, um, their community. Now, we had Cult of the Deep, which is our game. We had it on Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia. And we ran both events because Tabletopia is free for people. Um, now, you want premium and pay the per month, a different thing. But Tabletopia is free and people can play the game for free if you're running like two rooms at the most. So we were able to do that and we had a lot of people play the game because they did not have tabletop simulator because as even as small as the price was sometimes at 10 or $20 and you get a lot of value out of it, not everyone's going to find that to be the best choice for them. So that's where Tabletopia came in and was great for us in um, helping people try the game out. Um, we also have a tabletop simulator mod, which we really, really enjoy, and people have really enjoyed it. Um, it's automated. It has a really cool altar table for people. Um, it's in a cave. It's got torches and do all kinds of stuff with it to make it kind of fun, um, which we really have a lot of fun with. And people who play tabletop simulator do that because so, you see it like every month, tabletop simulator or tabletopia. And you see it in a lot of communities because people don't know which way to go. And the answer for me is both. You should have both. And if anything, you should have a third because Board Game Arena has had a big chunk of following in the UK as well as a, there's a, there's a sizable group in the US who plays it as well. 
Gotcha. Now, what are some things I need to be thinking about running my game digitally that maybe I wouldn't have to think about if it was in person? Like, what are some just kind of best practices going on right now? Uh, best practices, uh, you have to, have to be early um, to digitals because if they show up to an empty room, like, even if you're around and you're not there, they're just going to leave. Or some will stay because you're adamant to the time, but you should be early, most definitely early, and not like five minutes early, 15, 20 minutes early. Um, so I think on digital, you have to be a little earlier and be there and just kind of chat with people and hang out, which is also a good opportunity for you to build um, the connection with players. Just talk about stuff. Let it be about your game. Just talk about Gen Con. Talk about um the newest release talk about pendulum talk about whatever game is coming out like just just be a person um and by doing so so digitally that's more much more important um being there early and being able to be there um, number two you also have to take more control of the situation digitally because people can't see you physically and they can't so everything's just by voice so they don't know if it's you talking or someone else in the group so you have to kind of establish yourself as the person running the group, which means you need to be on target. So when someone comes in, you need to say hi. You need to say introduce yourself. And you need to make sure that they recognize your voice as the person running the game. Um, now, in smaller player counts, not a big deal. But our game can play up to eight players. And we had at one point, we had 16 people in one channel. Um, plus the two, me and so we actually had 18 people in the channel. So we had to, okay, everybody calm down. Let's get this started. All right. So you guys are part of this team. All right. You're going to play this group over here. So we would then give you them out to different tables and channels, but you just got to make sure you have that control of the social situation verbally, not just in presence that you would normally at a convention. How do people know where to go? Like where do they find the links to your discord, to your tabletop simulator or your tabletopia mod? How do, how do they just figure out where to end up? Um, at a convention or in general? At the these online conventions, like right? So you ran Gen Con online. How did people know how to get to you? So this is where it's important. One of the, the key aspects is always talk to the event organizer and ask them at least one question. Um, and ma make it a good one. Because event organizers will actually tell you how to run the event. So when I did Gen Con, there was a lot of confusion. And I think Gen Con necessarily didn't necessarily, um, they, did, they had a lot going on. They put all this stuff together in six weeks. So hats off to them for running an amazing um, event online. I thought it was really great. It was very successful. I, thought, I think they had something like seven or 8,000 people attended or more at least. Um, might even been more to be honest, but they had quite a few people um, play games and do a lot of stuff. So in terms of your event organizer is your best friend. They're the ones who are going to tell you how to do things. So Gen Con, for example, one of the things in one of the emails, he talked about if you want a free event, you have to do this. You have to go to the special section and request it through the system, and they'll then make your event from a $2 or ticketed event to a free ticketed event. So that's one thing, it's very important to talk to event organizers. Because um, even if I 
we didn't see that email, but then we asked him, hey, in the past, I know you've had free ticketed events. Is that something we can do here? And they're like, oh, yeah, you can. Here's um, how to do it. Here's an email about it. Um, just do this, this, and we'll follow through. So asking the questions to event organizers who know the event front and back are your best friends. Because we also asked them, hey, we're running events, but and Gen Con, what's the best way to get people to play at our event? And they told me, make sure you're in the catalog when it launches. Which in my mind, I was like, that's crazy talk. That's now how I do events. Um, I try to do a little more of a marketing push, different stuff, but they were adamant and they told me multiple times, be in the catalog when it launches or as close as possible. And I was like, all right, so I'll do it your way. So we made sure we were in the um, event catalog uh, really close to opening day um, and stuff. And we literally in a period of 24 hours got like 70 some odd signups from people. And we're like, oh, oh, good. <laughs> Did not see that one coming. I thought it was going to be like 20 or 30, 70. But then, and then like within 48 hours, it was already up to 100. We had already like maxed out capacity in two days. And so luckily we had planned for that. And so we ever double all of our games. So we had more. So we ended up with like 168 people signing up uh, for Cult of the Deep, which was awesome. And to be honest, probably at 150 of those came from the catalog. There are about 18 who came from our Twitter posts and our Facebook posts, which is, which is good. It's 18 more people than we would have had. But grand majority came because the event organizer said, this is how you get people to play your game. And make sure you put learn to play because people are learning, wanting to learn new games. So that's what we did. And it worked out great. Okay, gotcha. Anything else people need to be thinking about if they're going to run demos at an online convention? Um, get people to help you. Um, I know you want to do it yourself. Don't do it. Um, you will kill yourself that way. Um, both physically, um, cause you're like, Oh, it's just a convention. Yeah. But when you're running, um, games, we ran 27 games of cult of the deep, which online is about a two hour game in person is about an hour. So online games are a lot longer than normal. If you played any games online, it's always longer than it takes actually in person. For a variety of reasons, but we ran 27 games um, over the weekend, and doing it by myself, I think I might have quit. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm done. I would have burnt out, and that's what you have to try and avoid. Even like when you do game design, you probably familiar with this game. You, you can't burn yourself out. You got to take care of yourself. I think you had a podcast about this actually not too long ago about self care. Oh yeah. So. Get people to help and support you. Even if they're not running games, if they're grabbing food for you or giving you uh, drinks or if they're just giving you a high five, whatever it takes, um, you need people around you to support you. And so I couldn't have done it without uh, my people at the convention. Uh, my brother Joe, Kenny, um, Mega, and Melkor. Like I, I, couldn't, I couldn't, have, couldn't have done it without them. They, they made it all possible. Absolutely. Well, Sam, this has been awesome. Any other thoughts, any closing thoughts for people? Maybe they're sitting there thinking, gosh, I, I want to run a game. You know, I, I'd love to have my game demoed at conventions or something like that. What would you tell them just in general? Um, go out and do it because no one's going to do it for you unless you pay them. 
which that's why the double exposure, the Envoy, and all, and those other companies exist for. Um, I think does Indie Game Alliance do it too? I think they might do it as well. Yeah, they do. So yeah, um, he's a nice guy. So he's another one that if you think about doing it um, that way. But honestly, get your hands dirty, get in there, and get it done. Which means you're going to make mistakes, and that is okay. Um, when I first started demoing, I made some major bonehead mistakes. Um, totally. Uh, and I've said stupid stuff and gotten in so much trouble. Um, anything bad, but, you know, just just dumb stuff. And if it's just not good. So you're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. So have your support team. Go out there. Try and do it. Reach out to event organizers. We actually did a five things you should do when working at virtual con. If you're interested in it, you let me know. Um, but it's really just five basic things to think about when you're running a convention. And remember, most convention is about convention prep, knowing how your game is going to be played. If someone's playing it as a, uh, just for five minutes, how are they going to play the game? What characters, what, what setup are you going to run? Are you going to run just a beginning setup? Or maybe it's a game that's partway through. And in this, if they do these different decisions, it's going to be this really cool combo that gets me excited about the game. Are you going to run full demos? If you are, who's going to run them? If they run them, have they demoed a game before or have they demoed your game? One of the things that we did, we did training. So every person that ran my game, they've played my game three or four times. And then they played a game to other people and taught the game by themselves while I observed. That way... I can be like, okay, that's really good. You might want to say this, do this. So if you're going to do it, get in there, get your hands dirty, um, and do the prep work. That's the most important thing is do all the prep work. No doubt. All right, your game, Cult of the Deep, is coming to Kickstarter here before too long. Give me like the two-minute elevator pitch and tell people where they can find out more information about that one. So Cult of the Deep is a hidden roll of dice game uh, for four to eight players, which for demos has its own... Um, problems, by the way, uh, but a lot of fun. Anyways, so Cult is a hidden roll dice game uh, where you are a cultist trying to establish your factions like rise to power, and what you're doing is you're fighting over rituals and you're fighting over like mythical monsters like the Kraken, the Siren, and the Sea Hydra, and during the whole process, you're trying to kind of control the cult and get victory for your team. Um, so it's a hidden roll dice game, a whole lot of fun, and plays in about 45, 60 minutes in person, a little more online. But if you want to know more about it, you can go to our website, which is B as in boy, a gamesco.com. Uh, you can go there. You can also check out our cult, the cult of the deep uh, Facebook group. Uh, we have a community there. We also do um, Instagram, Twitter on BA games, BA games co. And uh, if you're interested in playing cult of the deep, let us know. We have Tabletopia and Tabletop Simulator. We're excited to share it. Awesome. Well, Sam, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with Cult of the Deep and everything else you got going on right now. Ah, thank you. Uh, whew, exciting. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games.
Did I mention keep playtesting?